Hi, my name is Dawn and I'm married to Craig. This episode of Naked Conversations is just Craig reading the essay he wrote when he was released from a four-day inpatient stay. We hope you learn something from it and we appreciate your listening. Thank you. I and my wife, who is a beautiful, brilliant, badass psychiatric nurse practitioner, believe that mental illness should be treated like any other chronic disease. And in that spirit, we openly tell our personal stories about our journeys toward mental wellness. We share them with our kids, with our family and friends, our work colleagues and clients, and now in this essay about my recent struggle with you. Our goal is not exhibitionism or to garner sympathy, but is entirely aspirational, that our stories will lessen by some small degree the stigma people associate with mental illness in others and in themselves. We want our children, our friends and co-workers, and probably most of all ourselves to feel as little shame talking about our psychiatric struggles as I might about my battle with obesity or gout or arthritis. Our hope is that someone may hear this, and feel freer to tell a loved one or medical professional that they too are suffering before they make an irrevocable decision. For many years, I've struggled through periodic cycles of depression, and while trying to white-knuckle my way through the most recent bout, I made a plan to kill myself. Through a series of fortunate events, I was unable to follow through on that plan, I couldn't get the printer to print my suicide letters, I couldn't find my stepson's gun, and I couldn't stop myself from confessing all of this as I was searching his room for said gun, to my wife at the end of a long text exchange argument that she thought was about me ending our marriage, but was really about me trying to distance her emotional connection before I ended my life. My wife, a devout follower of Christ and believer in supernatural guidance, undoubtedly believes her God had a hand in this, while I, a near-stereotypical godless liberal, would call it the dumbest of luck. Regardless of what you may believe, my wife, my hero, my own personal badass, with the help of my eldest daughter, then proceeded to save my life. A brief tangent now about the surface of things. On the surface, Dawn and I don't belong together. She, a lifelong Christian, raised and educated in an evangelical, premillennial, fundamentalist, Baptist home and school, and I, a lapsed Methodist who decided at age 12 that I didn't believe a word of the Bible and was thrilled to learn a few years later that there was a word for people like me, atheist. On the surface, Don and I believe in very divergent depths of things, She, in the eternal love of a beneficent creator who uses hidden energies, both harmonic and dissonant, to guide us through our lives, and I, in the inevitability of the probable, both scientific and statistical, which insists that in the potentially infinite possible, nearly everything is eventual. On the surface, Don and I use our beliefs and education to very different ends. She, to heal the mentally ill, the the addicted, the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society, and I to create fictions that masquerade as deeper truths, 
utilizing all the metaphorical tools bullshit artists and con men have used for centuries. On the surface, Don and I should not be madly in love with one another. But despite the surface of things, she is my favorite person in the whole world, and I am hers. Back to saving my life. <clears throat> Several months prior to making my ill-fated suicide plan, Dawn and I make a momentous decision. The company she works for, Indiana Center for Recovery, has purchased the old St. Joe Hospital in Mishawaka, Indiana, and they ask her to move up there for a year to help them train staff, open the first two floors dedicated to treating both dual diagnosis addictions and more traditional mental illnesses, prepare to open two more floors dedicated to juvenile and veterans' mental health in a few months, as well as start and run their intensive outpatient program from the first floor of the hospital. It's a monumental task and will require her to remove three hours away from our home just south of Indianapolis. It will mean an entire year of only seeing each other on weekends because I work as an electrician and supervisor of trades at a small college and have committed to using the tuition remission benefit to put my two daughters through college for free and so can't move with her. Like a good spouse, Dawn gives me the option of telling her no before she accepts the offer. And, like a good spouse, there's no way I can deprive her of this exciting opportunity to, to create her own programs and practice the healing art to which she has dedicated her life. It's only one year, I tell myself. What's 12 measly months set against the rest of our lives when it means my wife, my hero, my badass will be helping hundreds of people begin to heal the wounds of their past traumas, correct their natural or acquired chemical imbalances, and save the lives of so very many people much needier than I. Yes, it'll be difficult. Yes, it'll be extraordinarily stressful and lonely. But Don and I have an equally extraordinary love for one another, and we will be stronger than the distance between us and find ways to mitigate the loneliness of being apart for so much time. We'll FaceTime every morning and night. We'll spend our weekends in each other's embrace, and we will tell each other absolutely everything, just as we always have since the beginning of our late-in-life romance. What's one year, I ask myself? One year is nothing, I answer. It turns out to be just a little bit more than nothing. Another tangent about the surface of things. On the surface, I can be exceedingly funny. I'm creative and witty, and while my sense of humor is often absurd or ironical, I have a background as an actor, so my delivery can be dry and deadpan, which makes me the funniest person my wife has ever met. On the surface, Dawn believes she's funnier than I am. While she's wrong, she is quick-witted and wickedly smart, and often has a unique comeback that is a perfectly timed counterpoint to a tense moment in need of relief or to a brilliant premise that I have put forth. On the surface, I use humor as a defense mechanism. I use it to diffuse tension, to self-deprecate, and allow people to feel at ease with me. But often when I have disagreements with loved ones, friends, or co-workers, I mistake sarcasm for humor and passive aggression for wit. On the surface, I sometimes use humor as a weapon when I feel vulnerable. And Dawn does not always put up with that bullshit, especially when she's weary from healing people who sometimes don't want to get better, and her favorite person is being a petulant, resentful asshole. Back to saving my life. 
The first month seems to be the hardest. Dawn rents a small house a few miles from the hospital in Mishawaka. She lives there by herself at first until her son decides he wants to try a fresh start in a new place and agrees to move up there with her. This way she won't have to live alone during the week and she and he, who'd had a rocky time of it together during his teenage years after Dawn's previous husband and his father died from complications of his own mental health and addictions in 2013, they can work on mending their relationship now that he's an adult and she's healed her broken heart. And with her son in the house to help with meals and chores, she'll eat out less with her boss and friends from the hospital and can come home to a house that is kept reasonably tidy and have a safe place to relax, finish her clinical notes, enjoy their two dogs, and watch the occasional movie with her brilliant, sometimes acerbic, but shy and good-hearted boy. There are problems nearly from the start. Poor communication and unspoken expectations— Hidden and unresolved resentment surface between Dawn and her son, and within a week there is a blow-up that threatens to not only end their relationship in the short term, but also spill over into our marriage. Her son is struggling to assert his independence. Dawn is overwhelmed with the many duties her work demands of her, and I watch as they take swipes at each other over trivialities and deeper, unhealed wounds. At the end of that first week, Sunday sees Dawn telling her son and I to go home and leave her alone. She has too much to worry about trying to handle staff turnover, replacing a few unreliable providers, and saving the lives of people suffering the diseases of addiction and mental illness to deal with two lazy, privileged, unappreciative men who can't accomplish simple tasks of daily living without seemingly constant direction. After that first crisis and escalating verbal sparring in group texts and on the phone, I take off work that Monday and Tuesday and insist her son and I drive back up to work things out. That night and over the next week, we all get on the same page, set reasonable expectations of each other and agree that things will proceed as planned, confident now that we are on the proper footing and that our abiding love will see us through whatever hard times lie ahead. And after that, things are much better. Another tangent about the surface of things. On the surface, I am an excellent stepfather. After a difficult beginning in which Don's son resented me, the avowed godless liberal replacing his father, a devout Christian and brilliant veterinarian, my kindness and humor slowly won him over. Now we hug, express love verbally, and share in the age-old male tradition of showing affection through vicious insults. On the surface... I am an excellent father to my daughters. My oldest is 25 and has a 4.0 after her first full year of college, and my 16-year-old is a brilliantly talented artist. Both are creative, uniquely funny and gifted, and owe all of it to their incredibly humble, very handsome, and unaccountably wise dad who never overuses adjectives to describe himself in the third person. On the surface, I am an excellent spouse, I give my widowed wife plenty of room to celebrate her deceased husband. I encourage her to step into her power as a brilliant woman and gifted healer. I'm a masseuse, a better-than-average cook, and a generous lover who gives her raging orgasms from which she struggles to recover. On the surface, I am an excellent human. I'm polite to a fault, kind to almost everyone I meet, can almost always make people laugh or at least smile, with a few exceptions, like tidiness, money management, and self-motivation, I've really got my shit together. 
back to saving my life. Over the next few months, Dawn and I find a way to make things work. She has a fulfilling career because she's a badass warrior for love and light, and her colleagues and patients tell her so every day. She and her son are getting along better than ever. During the week, Dawn and I talk three times a day on the phone. I have my youngest three of those weekdays. On the weekends I have my daughter, Dawn comes home and brings the dogs with her, and my daughter loves animals. On the weekends my ex has her, I travel to Mishawaka. Dawn and I revel in our love when we're together, and when we're apart, though we miss each other, we still tell each other everything, no secrets between us, because we're too old for that shit, and we believe in honesty. And on the nights when I don't have my daughter and I'm alone in the house, I have my own writing project, a novel I'm taking one final swing at. I'm nearly 200 pages in, have cut out all the excess crap so now it has room to breathe. The work feels vital and fresh. I really think in this seventh draft that I'm finally getting it right. But when I get home from work, more and more I find that I'm increasingly too tired. Too tired to do much more than crack a few jokes at my 16-year-old artist, pick up fast food on the way home, get her settled with dinner and homework, then go to my bedroom to isolate, where I'm too tired to work on the novel and tell myself I'll do it tomorrow when I'm alone in the house. Instead, I watch TV and wait for Dawn to call me after work. I check her location on my phone to watch her not leaving the hospital till late, or worse, going out for a meal with her boss again. I know it's nothing romantic, and besides, I'm a liberal who believes in platonic relationships. The nights I'm alone, I binge-watch more and more TV and grow resentful the longer it takes her to call me. I don't keep a tidy house, and though I try to clean up the night before Dawn comes home, it never seems to be clean enough to suit her, and I resent the criticism. The passive aggression waxes and wanes. Sometimes we talk about our issues openly, sometimes we bury them under humor and love-making. She has to be on her phone a lot when we're together, and for good reason. She's saving people's lives, and her team counts on her wisdom. But all I see is that she's only half listening to me most of the time. I wonder why I'm not important enough for her attention, and she wonders why she's not important enough for me to stop being so lazy and unappreciative. She makes nearly five times what I do. Why can't I value that enough to give her peace when she's home and a safe place to land from all the chaos of mental health care? She spends more time at work, because she is celebrated there, and being celebrated feels good. And my other coping mechanism. I agree with everything to avoid more conflict and quietly eat my feelings. But everything is cool. We're not like other couples. We're totally honest with each other. Yet another tangent about the surface of things. On the surface, people don't always see depression. They expect depressed people to be sad and quiet, to look mopey and have a dour outlook on life, to walk around like Eeyore, leaving half-empty glasses in their wake like soggy breadcrumbs to follow to a well of misery. On the surface, I'm still funny. I make the guys laugh when we sit around at break time in the shop. The secretary in the front office comments about how dryly I can deliver witty one-liners. I smile at nearly everyone I pass, and I'm always ready with a laugh when someone else makes a joke that's not nearly as funny as the one I would have made, because I'm hilarious. On the surface, I'm totally honest with my wife. She knows I'm depressed because we talk about it. She feels responsible and wants me to get help. 
She checks in with my state of mind frequently. She encourages me to call my family and pee and ask for an antidepressant. She tells me I should consider therapy like she does because it's healthy and I need it. On the surface, I don't need any of that shit. I've dealt with things like this before, and this time is no different. Everyone else can see that I'm fine. So I'm a little sad. No big deal. I'll just power through it like always. Back to saving my life. The last month, it feels like we're in a rhythm and it's working. The restaurants in Mishawaka are excellent. There's a really great Thai-Mexican place that we love. We eat pizza, we snack, and watch our favorite shows together. Neither of us cheats during the week and watches ahead. We make love and hold each other. I'm more understanding now when she has to be on her phone. Her job is important, and I can read my book for a few minutes while she puts out another fire. Dawn starts doing work in some of the indigenous communities in southern Michigan. She goes to a training session in Colorado for a week and comes back invigorated. She's invited to a sweat lodge, then another. She's doing great work, vital work. She feels the calling in her soul. Her God is powerful, and he works through her. She finds a new church in South Bend, and I encourage us both to go, even though I don't believe. I know it's good for her, and I appreciate the chance to be quiet and meditate on my life. And besides, this pastor is gay and liberal, and he has a remarkable way of looking at the world. Yeah, I'm sad when Sunday comes and she or I have to leave. The trip home is pretty miserable. The week is long and lonely. But I'm living for Friday, and when it comes, I'm riding high in the arms of my love. And I'm okay. Really, I am. I'm honest with Dawn, to a point. The last couple of weeks, I'm only mildly surprised that I'm feeling less and less. My affect is flatter. She notices these things, and we talk about them. I acknowledge them, yes, but I don't mention that more and more I find myself thinking that it wouldn't be so bad if I didn't wake up tomorrow. And I definitely don't tell her that I've started thinking about ways I could do it myself. I mean, I've got kids. I would never do that to them. I can get through this. I've done it before. But my shirts are tighter. I exercise every day at lunch, racquetball or running, but I'm eating badly and gaining weight. My feet hurt because I'm getting old and fat. But everything's cool. Then the Saturday night before Mother's Day, Dawn and I get into an argument. It's about nothing, really. We never fight. It's not a big deal. Still, she tells me I should go home that night. She has too much on her plate for my bitter humor and impatience with her texting work. I don't argue. I agree with everything because that's what I do when confronted with my own resentments. I leave. On the three-hour drive home, I am emotionless. I'm thinking about my stepson's gun. I don't know where it is, but his room is small. I bet I could find it. I decide to sleep on it. Maybe I'll feel better in the morning. But I don't feel better. It's Mother's Day, so I take my youngest to her mom's. Tell her I love her. Dawn and I text back and forth. I tell her not to worry. None of this is her fault. I'll be out of her life and things will be easier. She thinks I want to end the marriage. I don't argue. I just keep telling her I'm sorry and that things will be better once she lets me go. And it feels true to me. The girls will be better off, too. Yes, it'll be hard, but people survive. Sometimes they even thrive. I write my suicide notes. It's cathartic. I can finally be totally honest about how pathetic I am, how unworthy I've been this whole time. The charade can be over. I feel relieved. Dawn still doesn't know. She still thinks it's about divorce. Which is fine.
Then the printer won't connect. I can't find the goddamn gun. Happy fucking Mother's Day. A final tangent about surfaces. On the surface, it all feels right. At this point, it's okay to let Dawn in because she's so pissed and exasperated she'll probably tell me it's okay. She understands if I want to get out. She's had suicidal thoughts herself before and I've had to pull her out of them. She gets it. Maybe she'll even tell me where the gun is. On the surface, we're all replaceable. My oldest daughter is so much stronger than me. She'll probably be pissed and hurt, but that'll be fuel for her. She'll rise above this and be better because of it. We're strongest where we've broken and healed. She'll be there for my youngest because she's more vulnerable, and my oldest has always been a protector. On the surface, my story is about wasted potential. For years, I fooled everyone around me into thinking I was worth something, that I was funny, that I was smart, that I was talented. But I was never as funny as I thought I was, never as smart as I put on, never as talented as I yearned to be. On the surface, I wasn't worth the resources I was using. Food, water, space. Space of every kind, physical, mental, emotional, a spiritual space that I've never felt or believed in. Better to leave this space blank. Hit delete and let someone else start it over. Finally, saving my life. There is a delay after the last text. That's all right. Maybe Dawn is asking my stepson where he keeps his gun. Then she calls. It's all been texts till now. I hear her voice. She asks me where I am. I tell her I'm at the house. I think I tell her it'll be okay. Then my eldest daughter is calling. As soon as I see her name pop up, I know that my wife had called. That's when I start to panic. I don't want my girl to know, not till I'm gone. I freak out and finally start to cry. And once the dam bursts, there's no stopping it. I'm sobbing and screaming, trying to hold it together. Dawn is telling me now it will all be okay. I switch over to talk to my daughter. She and her fiancé are speeding over to the house, and she's telling me it will be okay. I can't stop crying now. But I know as soon as I hear her voice on the phone, I can't kill myself now. I tell her I won't do anything. Tell her I'll leave the front door open for her, and I do. We call Dawn back and let her tell us what to do. My daughter holds me while Dawn talks. Then we pack a bag and she takes me to the emergency department at St. Francis in Indianapolis. I cry and I cry and I tell them everything, hold nothing back. They keep me overnight because they can't find any open beds that evening, but they can get me in somewhere on Monday morning. My daughter and I talk a long time. It's really good, hard but good. She's such a strong person, even while she's watching her dad crumble. Eventually, I tell her she should go home. She has finals that week and a 4.0 to maintain. I'm safe and reassuring, so finally she goes. When the crisis team member comes back, he offers me two choices, a place called Options in Indianapolis or another place in Bloomington an hour south. I'd sent my phone home with my daughter. I knew I couldn't have it anyway, so I don't Google either place to read reviews or stats. I choose options because it's an indie and closer to everyone I know. The next morning, they take me there. At first, it seems okay. I still can't stop crying for long, but the initial lady who checks me in is really sweet. I sign all the papers they put in front of me. No one offers to explain any of it, and I don't ask. I figured they're professionals and know what they're doing. 
I go upstairs to the locked unit. The RN goes through a short questionnaire, smiles a lot, goes through all the things they offer, a gym, art therapy, massage, if I have pain. I see the schedule, group sessions, meetings with psych professionals, gym every day at one, art therapy in the afternoons. My roommate is nice enough. We agree right away that we seem like the sanest people there and laugh a little. Though I'm still very sad and cry frequently, I don't feel unsafe. Okay, really though, one last tangent about the surface of things. On the surface, Don's hospital looks like many others. A big brick building, Indiana Center for Recovery is five stories where patients' rooms are clean and well-kept. The offices where providers see patients are spacious and spilling over with soothing music, aromatherapies, and soft lighting. There's a gym, a small hair salon, there are yoga sessions, and big rooms where groups are held. On the surface, Don's Hospital works like any psych facility. Patients are seen by a case manager, a therapist, and a medical provider within 24 hours of being admitted. With the patient's consent, family and caretakers are contacted quickly and frequently to keep them updated on their loved one's progress, and a care plan is crafted and approved by all parties when a patient is discharged. On the surface, Don's team functions as it should. Patient care is the central concern, and if a patient has an issue, it is dealt with right away. And whether it's a medication problem, an emotional crisis, or an error on the part of staff, Don fields calls day and night to make things right. No floors are left unattended, no patient question unanswered, no blood work or test incomplete. On the surface, Dawn is like any medical provider should be. She's deeply compassionate and driven, works until all her patients are seen and cared for, and puts in long hours after patient care to make sure her notes are complete. She teaches phenomenal groups, opens every book to explain medications and how they act on the brain, and always has time for someone in need. I know this because it eats into our private time. When she comes home, she is weary, and her patients, many of whom have cycled through other systems before, tell her frequently that she helped save their life. I've read the thank you notes. I've talked to the successes. And I've been the recipient of her love. Saving my life again. Options Behavioral Health in Indianapolis is a shit show. I help my behavioral health aide make my bed when she shows me to my room, a flat sheet, small pillow, and two blankets. The top blanket has a piece of chewing gum stuck and folded into it. I'm not a complainer, and gum is the least of my concerns in the moment, so the aide and I both ignore it. The first night is the scariest. We go to bed at 10 p.m. My roommate and I chat for about 20 minutes in the dark, and it's a relief to have a friendly presence in the room. But around 2 or 3 a.m., someone from the other end of the hall starts screaming, and the aide down there decides to argue loudly back at the man. They yell at each other for what feels like at least an hour before a code purple is finally called and the man is subdued. After that, I don't sleep at all. I try to wait in the morning to call Dawn because I don't want to bother her, but by 10 a.m., I'm still frightened and feeling alone in all this, so I'm allowed to call her, and I do. She asks all the right questions. Have I seen a provider, a therapist, a case manager? Have they done a biopsychosocial assessment? It's a lengthy questionnaire, apparently, so I should have remembered. The answer to every question is no. I had checked in at 12.30 the previous day, and Dawn tells me that if they haven't done all of that within the next couple of hours, she'll come and get me if necessary and take me somewhere else. I tell her I'll let her know and repeat how sorry I am about all of this. She tells me she loves me. 
An hour or two later, I meet with a psych NP for about 15 minutes and she prescribes an SNRI antidepressant effexor, and I take my first dose that day. When I call Dawn later that evening, I still haven't been seen by anyone else or been given a biopsychosocial. I tell her the therapist seems overwhelmed but feel sure she'll see me the next day, first thing. We're both willing to give them a little more time to do their jobs, and at that point I'd spent more time with my fellow inpatients and realized they all have good hearts and intentions, even the screamer from the night before who turns out to be one of the friendliest incessant talkers I've ever met. I'm feeling more confident now that I'll be okay. Options Behavioral Health does two things right for me. They get me on a fast-acting antidepressant that has me feeling better within two days, and they allow me to make acquaintance with a group of patients on my unit who are suffering just like I am. The effects are as restoring all the neurotransmitters in my brain that have been drained by my depression. I'm feeling again, and what I'm feeling is a tremendous sense of gratitude that I'm still alive. I'm thankful for my family, my friends, my life again. And I'm thankful to talk to all my fellow sufferers around me, many of whom don't have the bonds of love or the resources that I have at home and have cycled in and out of options and facilities like it for years without finding relief. But beyond those two things, option fails at every other promise they make. That gym, we go once the entire time I'm there. The therapist finally meets with me after 52 hours in the facility and then only after I've told the nurses that my wife is a psych NP and that they are required to provide a therapist within 24 hours of admittance. Case manager, never see one. Biopsychosocial, if I am assessed, I'm totally unaware of it. Groups last 15 to 20 minutes and never really involve any back-and-forth discussion. They're mostly just an aide asking each of us a question or three and checking off boxes when we answer. After 72 hours, I am ready to go home. My wife is there now, back from Mishawaka. We have a care plan in place that includes an appointment with a psychiatrist the next day, and I'm feeling better than I have in months. Despite having a safe home and a plan for my care, I am told that I won't be discharged for another three days. I have private insurance. Even though I admitted myself voluntarily and they have no legal or ethical reason to keep me longer. When my wife tells me to ask to leave AMA against medical advice, I am told to sign an AMA form that gives them the right to keep me an extra 24 hours before making a decision to release me am informed that if I take one step out the door, they will inject me with Haldol and that I will automatically have another 72-hour emergency detainment order added to my stay, which, since weekends don't count in Indiana, will add another five days to my discharge date and that even after 24 hours, they may decide to keep me another 72 regardless. Somewhere amongst those papers that I signed that first day in which no one explained to me, the day when I was crying and feeling lower than I ever have before, I have apparently signed away my right to autonomy. On top of all that, I am told that my wife is no longer allowed to call me nor I her because, in their assessment, she is upsetting me, even though I'm always polite, never raise my voice, and invariably thank each staff member I interact with, even after they've denied me my rights, threatened me with chemical restraint, and told me I can't talk to my spouse. I never get upset, make demands, or threaten anyone, including myself. I am allowed to call my daughter. They don't know that they're together. I'm so calm about everything that I console my wife and daughter when they're upset on the phone, telling them that although I'm not getting the services I should, I'm not unsafe and that everything will be okay. But my wife, my hero, my own personal badass is having none of that shit.
All right, I'm totally serious. The absolute last tangent about the surface of things. On the surface, Dawn is a petite woman with long gray hair and beautiful blue eyes. She has a ready laugh, a smile that beams, and lilting voice that could soothe a grumpy tiger to sleep. In short, the perfect disguise for a brilliant mind that's always two steps ahead and a razor-sharp tongue that's waiting to slice incompetence to shreds. On the surface, Dawn is a woman who got a late start in life. She had a religious education that left her feeling college was beyond her, so she didn't start nursing school until she was in her late 30s and got her first master's degree when she was 48, her second when she was 52. I like to tease her that I had a 4.0 in my MFA program, and she, after getting one B in all her years, had a 3.97, but the truth is, she's the smartest person I know. On the surface, Dawn is a woman who's known great tragedy in her life. She openly talks about being the victim of a sexual predator youth pastor as a young girl, has sat with caged animals who were about to be euthanized, and watched the love of her life struggle with his own chemical addiction before succumbing to cancer that was likely the result of that struggle. She's been broken in more ways than most of us can fathom, and all it has done is made her stronger and more resilient than ever. On the surface, Dawn is just a beautiful woman. But underneath, she is cool, she is competent, and she knows exactly how to make you wish you'd never fucked with her in the first place. She's my favorite person, and more importantly, I am hers. In many respects, I feel a great deal of empathy for the employees at Options Behavioral Health. The need they serve is a tremendous burden. They're overwhelmed, understaffed, underpaid and poorly trained. Their clientele is often poor, undereducated, unhoused, or nearly so. Most of the time, they get only what Medicaid will pay them, which I'm guessing isn't much. The mentally ill they serve frequently don't understand their rights, and once discharged, don't have the resources or wherewithal to follow up on aftercare, stay on their meds, or maintain therapeutic regimens that sometimes require them to change entire lifestyles and give up self-medicating habits that are difficult to break under the best of circumstances. Many of the staff I talk to while there share stories of their own hardships— and I would guess that the longer you see tragedy after tragedy after tragedy play out cyclically again and again and many of the same faces passing by the tiny plexiglass window you look out of, the more difficult it becomes to care, to make your heart vulnerable to another person's pain day in and day out. With a few exceptions, most of the staff at Options are suffering from severe compassion fatigue. They need more resources, more training, more oversight to make sure they are following applicable laws and getting their patients the care they so desperately need. So it's understandable why they find it easy to dismiss me and my concerns. It's hard to sound sane, no matter how polite and kind you are when you're talking to someone through a tiny plexiglass hole. Not everyone has a dawn outside who knows the laws, the way the system should work, and will stop at nothing to advocate for her love. But I do. So she chews them up and spits them out, points out error after error until she gets me out of there, just like she said she would. Now she's got me on a path to wellness again, and I feel incredibly blessed to have her in my life, loving me and allowing me to love her right back. No, 
Not everyone has a dawn, but I'm happier now than ever to lend you mine. If this experience has taught me anything, it's that the work she does is more valuable than ever. So when we get home after everything is done and we're lying together in our bed again, she asks me, do you want me to quit my job and move back home? And I tell her no. I understand now in a way that I never did before how vital having a dawn is. I think about my friends back in Unit 3, the ones who might still be there and the ones who will cycle through again. I think about how valuable someone like Dawn would have been to them. They deserve better than Options currently has to offer. I don't yet know what to do about that, but I know I'm not going to keep quiet about it. I can't. At the beginning of May, just a couple of weeks before my stupid Mother's Day suicide plan, Dawn told me that she was going to pray we find a solution to our separation. She thinks her God will find a way to put us back together so we're not spending so much time apart. Instead, I spend a week in an awful place and come out with a profound new understanding about how important the work she does is. So that night, after I tell her that we should stick to the plan, I hesitantly suggest that maybe this was the answer to her prayer, something neither of us expected or would have asked for, but has nonetheless been an invaluable lesson. She immediately embraces the idea and is more certain now than ever that her God is real. But I am still skeptical. Yes, I'll admit, on the surface, it feels very much like a miracle. And I'm grateful for everything I have in a way I haven't been for years. But I still feel the need to dig under the surface of all this and find whatever deeper truth is waiting for me. Maybe God or maybe just more of the inevitability of the probable. Naked Conversations is a Mountain Loves the Morning Light production. Thank you for listening.